everybody. Welcome to another episode of Well, This Isn't Normal. My name is Sarah Benincasa, and I'm so glad that you're here. You can support the podcast at Patreon, patreon.com slash Sarah Benincasa. You can also support by going to matrushka.com slash code slash Sarah. That's matrushka.com slash code slash Sarah for 20% off plus free shipping on clothing handmade in Los Angeles. You can also go to matrushka.com and just enter offer code S-A-R-A at checkout. So whether you go to patreon.com slash Sarah Benincasa or you use offer code S-A-R-A at checkout at matrushka.com. Just know that you are helping keep this podcast going. Today, my guest is Sam Bailey. Sam is incredibly talented, a former actress, a director, a writer, a producer, a lot of different things. And we spoke a few months ago. So this episode is coming out in August of 2020. I think I interviewed Sam in late June of 2020, something like that. So I just want to put that in context for you as you hear us speaking about different things, different people. Just know that it was done, let's say, earlier in the summer, early in the summer of 2020. She's really great. And... um Let's all take a deep breath together in case you've got your your shoulders up near your ears. Let's take a moment, drop those shoulders, okay? If you are laying down, if you're sitting up, get into a comfortable position and inhale so that your belly fills up. Hold it, hold it, hold it. And exhale through your mouth slowly. Move your neck around a little bit if you're able and if that feels comfortable. Let's do another deep breath. If it feels comfortable for you, if it's possible for you, let's breathe in slowly and fill that belly up. And let's hold a little bit and make sure that when you exhale slowly through your mouth, you're dropping your shoulders even more. All right. Get ready to fall in love with Sam Bailey. We had a long conversation because I just found her to be so much fun and I can't wait for you to get to know more about her as well. I'll talk to you when our conversation is done. Hey, everybody. I'm really excited to be here on a beautiful gray Los Angeles morning, which is my favorite kind of Los Angeles morning with Writer, producer, storyteller, probably more things, <laughs> Sam Bailey. Hi, Sam. Hi, how are you, Sarah? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? I am, uh, I'm like so particular now when people ask me how I'm doing, right? Because it's like, oh. <laughs> like, well, it's complex because, you know, it, um, right, right now is... Um, I would say the one of the reasons that the two, just to share something with you that I didn't when we were chatting earlier, um, as you formulate your multi-layered response, I'm sure, <laughs> is that, you know, I called the show, Well, This Isn't Normal, 
because um, everybody's version of normal is different. So I thought it would be interesting to when chatting, like ostensibly, well, this isn't normal works as a title during the pandemic. Uh, and um, but but I think that where it becomes something that we kind of dig into and interrogate, which I wanted is when we look at the fact that everybody's normal is different and that has especially come up in, in conversations during the current anti-racist revolution, which has gained steam and a lot of public attention. Because what I have found myself hearing and watching are stories of people saying, these videos that you see, these stories you see shared on Instagram, these, these tales on podcasts, these speeches, people... Black people are sharing stories that are normal, that are normal. So it might not seem normal to me as a white woman watching going, wow, look mm -hmm. at it. People are really speaking up. Perhaps the speaking up in this way, getting perhaps the spotlight is not normal, but the stories and the storytelling is normal because black people have been telling these stories for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I guess in saying all that, I guess I can say that like I, I am today right now in this moment, like, okay, I'm safe, um, I, I'm healthy. I uh, have the luxury of being able to shelter at home um, without it being, uh, like I don't have babies, you know, all that stuff. Like, <laughs> like I'm very much like, I only have to take care of myself um, through this. So that's, that, that's been good um, or as good as it can be lately. Um, but yeah, there, is been, there has been this like, weird almost like distrust to the amount of people speaking up and out about this you know i i live downtown and the the first day of the riots the first night of the riots i just like i couldn't hear anything because my windows don't face the the, uh, the street but i just like felt something like something was like electric in the air and so i went outside or i went downstairs and i go downstairs and there's a uh, the standoff between the cops and the protesters were right outside my door. And I like walk out and they're all in like riot gear. And there was a part of me that I'm like, oh, you should be afraid of this. This should feel not normal. And then I remember like four years ago when like Flandel Castle was killed and Mike Brown and I was on, I was on Lakeshore Drive and we shut down Lakeshore Drive and it was us against the cops. I remember being there again. I'm like, oh, this feels like Groundhog's Day. Like this actually doesn't feel scary. This actually doesn't feel um new and so i just like went and got cigarettes and came back home like that's <laughs> you know like how i felt like oh okay this is what it is um and that's been weird that's been weird too to be like oh it feels like there's something going on but not really being able to, to fully trust it yet and also to know that it's, it's going to be such a long journey and so I feel like there's a people being like, okay, we fixed things in the last week. People made statements and da da da, da and now it's back to normal. And I'm very much like, it's really not back to normal. <laughs> like I really can't kind of go back to business as usual. We have now the, because we have such an archive of historical documents and, and by which, by documents, I also mean oral histories, mm -hmm. um, research we have we have so many um centuries worth of accumulated evidence of 
not just this country's abuse of black people, but also the of white responses. And so much of that huge body of evidence mm-hmm. is available at our fingertips. So not only do we hear, do I hear black people saying, well, here's why I don't necessarily trust um, white allyship, or here's why I don't necessarily trust that it will continue or that people will continue to give a shit. Um, So not only do we have that, the real voices of black people saying these things and providing examples, we also have the easiest access in history to evidence that that people, that white people will, can or have en masse abandon black people after something dies down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, and at the same time, I also hear people saying, or black people saying that it does feel different this time. Why does this feel different this time? And this kind of guarded hope as well as heartbreak and rage and sadness and so many different things. I mean, when you talk about feeling something in the air, I do wonder if we can feel other people's energy and emotions. Cause that's a lot of energy, right? Oh, yeah. Where you are. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think like, even as artists, I think that you can feel just on like a regular, like artistic level, feel people's energies, but specifically when it's like that amount of energy all like go- directed and almost like, in, yeah, it was like trying to be combustible kind of. Um, I think, I think we do feel that. Um, and I, and I think that for me, it's really difficult to, um, one, it's actually really difficult for me to, uh, to like take in what's going on. Right. Like, I think that, as black people, there's been so much that we've just learned to cope with um, that, you know, I have to like constantly be like, this is what is going on. Like I have to like be in my journal every day to kind of like factually put on, like put down on paper what's happened because I almost feel like it's not permeating me. If that makes sense. Uh, well, it does because if, if I, I think about, I used to be a high school teacher and um, so uh, my master's is in teaching grades seven through 12. Uh, but we studied a bit of adolescent development. We studied a little, we studied more of adolescent development, little bit of early childhood development. And this was years ago. Um, but we did talk a little bit about trauma and about ongoing trauma. We didn't talk about it in the way that the intelligent, like comprehensive way that we do now with you mm-hmm. know, books like the body keeps the score and, and, and people online, um, Therapy for Black Girls talks about this a lot. Like there are a lot of resources online that talk about it. But but one thing that we talked about was like um, when a child grows up with an ongoing threat that they, I remember talking about this in one class in particular, um, when they grow up with an ongoing threat in the home or not feeling safe in the home, um, the shield that they have to build up can also interfere with other things. Now, in our case, we were talking about interferences with learning and creation of learning differences, because if you've been in training since you were an infant to have a shield up with perception, 
Um, mm-hmm. Your brain has formed that way. So mm-hmm. it's going to necessarily lead to some, it may lead to some issues with learning and with social interaction in the classroom. That mm-hmm. was regarding, you know, students. But the, anal- the analogy here is like, if, as you said, you as a black person grown up having to deal with this and knowing it was there, I mean, how do you, why would, why would your shield not strengthen itself at this point? You know, like there has to be a little bit of a disconnect with the body and the experience or else how could Sam go about her day? Oh yeah. I mean, like, and, I, and also, you know, working in very like white, very cis male spaces, we almost always have to do that separate ourselves from this you know like they'll tell you that oh this is the way the business is done so that like when the man talks down to you that's not that's not like that's not because you're a woman that's just the way the business <laughs> or that's not because you're a black person it's just the way the business is and so you learn a way to like to cope with that you learn a way to like exist in that and the only way to exist in that and continue to take that on is to separate yourself from from your body from your mind to like which is horrible because I actually feel like I need all of those to do my job well. Um, to put it in context, by the way, for everybody who's listening, um, Sam is the creator of the Gotham-nominated web series You're So Talented and co-creator of the Emmy-nominated web series Brown Girls. And she has directed for the television set um, <laughs> as well as Facebook Watches, loosely exactly Nicole, which I mentioned because I love, I have Nicole Byers' um, memoir with, uh, with, well, not memoir. Why did I call it a memoir? It's a thirst trap, beautiful <laughs> uh, coffee table book of body inclusivity and positivity and and utter madness. It's amazing. Oh, I should get that. I've been on the coffee table book like thing right now. I have a lot. It's Works. really great. And and oh, right uh, next to the Rihanna book that I <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sam was included in the Roots 100 Most Influential African Americans of 2018, Forbes 30 mm-hmm. Under 30 Class of 2018, and New Cities film 50 list in 2016, 2018, and 2019. I throw all of that bio stuff at you and you have the kindest publicist, by the way, who's like lovely. Um, the Hi, Sarah. Sarah. Shout out to Sarah Coakley. But um, <laughs> delightful human with a really good list of clients. Whenever a publicist has a specifically curated list of only cool people, I'm like, interesting. I like it. I was like, it's so dope. I mean, we don't need to be out here like advertising for Sarah, but the fact that she is like out here really supporting like black queer artists and black female artists and brown artists and Muslim artists, the people that normally wouldn't have that type of platform, I think is really dope. Yeah, it didn't go unnoticed. I saw, I looked at her site and I was like, oh, I see. Oh, I was like, I see. (laughs) Oh, okay. I was like, I like her. Um, Because this is, but this, we can actually tie it in. I think it does. It is relevant here because in, in this industry, um, in the, what I, which, what I'll call Hollywood, but broadly speaking, also get into, uh, we'll also refer to book publishing as well. So I'm an author. I mean, I've done, I've adapted a couple of my books um, Mm -hmm. and, and therefore like on, in a few years of my life, I've had, not consecutive have had um, that amazing WGA health insurance, but <laughs> what a dream. But, um, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, we're dealing with, we're dealing with an industry that includes, um, 
that requires us to depict ourselves as awesome. And so we do some of that work ourselves. And there are people who are highly skilled and have a ton of relationships, a la Sarah, who, whose job in part is that and to get our work out in front of people. And so when we're dealing with an industry that's built on story, you are a storyteller, a story maker in various ways. Um, that can lead to, like, it's not, uh, this is not breaking news, uh, an atmosphere <laughs> based on artifice and on showboating. And there is a hierarchy that I, I've never worked in. Um, I've never staffed or worked in a, in a writer's room, but I certainly have um, talked to plant, listened to plenty of friends who've dealt with it. Yeah. There's one friend who said to me, a, a young black woman who's a writer who said to me the other day that she was exhausted. And she said, working under working with, all Gen X cis white dudes is dot 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 interesting. <laughs> I was like, I appreciate your capacity for understatement. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it's just it's cis white straight dudes because I think that they perhaps are of of a generation or of a a mindset. What it sounded to me was that these guys seem, they sound, they, they sound like they like to think they've got it all figured out. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> what's been really weird being in Hollywood, and I've been out here for like three years now and been working consistently for about two, um, is like how much people, well, there's a couple of things. One is like how much, how much just like, saying that you're the thing when you're like a straight white man allows you to become the thing regardless of if you are able or capable it's just like you'll realize like oh I wonder how this person got their job because they can't do the thing they've been hired <laughs> to do right like there's so much of as you say like the artifice of like just acting the part until until you I guess get the part and wait, think, like Sam, for a second, just as a, as a little act out for the, a little moment for the audience, let's pretend for just a second, I'll be that guy and, and you be the person interviewing me. Like, let's say that my name is, um, my name is, uh, Bradley. I was going to say Brad, bitch. <gasps> yes. <laughs> Do you like how I said Bradley? Cause I was like, he's really trying to deliver. Yeah. Bradley. Oh my God. I mean, you want the realty of the way these, these meetings go. They're like, not even. They're not asking you your capabilities. So it would be like, Brad, Brad, I, uh, I see you uh, made a YouTube video with your friends in college. Do you want to direct Star Wars? Like, that's what... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and the thing was, it was a challenge. I mean, you know, it was a challenge because I was using an iPhone 5 at that time, which <laughs> feels weird to say, bro. But uh, sorry, I'm sorry. That was informal. I shouldn't have called you, bro. I just feel a connection with you because we look the same. We went <laughs> to Harvard. Same Madeline. It's fine. It, it's great. We went to the same school. We have a lot of the same friends. Uh, and uh, I also am looking forward to buying a house in Eagle Rock when I get this deal. Uh, marrying my girlfriend, having a baby that I resent, and then getting divorced and taking it out on a writer's room. But yeah, I'd like to direct Star Wars. And then I'd like to do TV because I feel like TV is like film now, you know? Oh my I God. feel like Brad gets the job. 
Brad gets the job before he walks out. Not only does Brad get the job, Brad gets the job and he gets like a, a year deal with Sony or something. Because they're like, this guy's a winner. He can do it. <laughs> There's something about him. I don't know. It's just, I, just, I just like him. I see myself in him. Exactly. That is, that's, that's deep. Like that is it because it's this, this soul level. Some people feel this like deep soul level feeling like I, I want to mentor you. There's something about, I was reading an interview the other day with somebody who is a very generous mentor to mentees and was like, yeah, you just see him and you just feel like he's just so, you just feel like he's like a, a, a young genius. You just see it. And it's, they're talking about somebody where you're like, Really? Okay, cool. Like, that's cool. That person seems yeah. rad, actually. Uh, that person doesn't describe themselves that way. Like, yeah. this, uh, it was interesting to hear this, this individual really um, projecting a lot of hopes and dreams and, and feelings about themselves onto this young person. Yeah. And I realized in that moment, oh, that's how it works. Yeah, which is so weird because, like... I feel like the business will tell you over and over and over again, it's the business until they want to use your art as a way of like connecting us. Oh, but this artist is a genius. I'm like, is he a genius? Cause we're not doing genius stuff out here. Right. Like I felt like yeah. I was doing two and a half men. Like I thought that was the case, you know, like it's very, it's odd to me when they want to become an artist industry and when they want to be a business industry, like, you know what I'm saying? It's very odd to me. And I, and who gets to actually, uh, straddle that line right a lot of black creators don't get to do both don't get to um get the benefit of the doubt when it comes to making or creating literally anything out here like it it is such a fight to to get to be the person at the top to be get to put your bring your own people on um and i'm very much that to me that's like very important to me it's not I'm not interested really in getting like plucked from Chicago and then put in a Hollywood system where I don't get to like work with the people that I think also help me um, get to where I am. And I don't think that's idealistic. I think that's very, I mean, we know that that's how it works because Spielberg works with his guys and so-and-so works with their guys and da da da. But they expect, I don't know what they expect. I know that like when I'm on set, um, it is the majority always older white men, always like, insanely a lot more <laughs> than uh it's very like unbalanced in that way and also the amount of times i've had a woman one of usually like one of the only women on set pull me to the side and be like i've been in the industry for 20 years for 30 years for 10 years and you're the first female director i've ever seen that's amazing that i've ever worked with so it's like that's always in the back of your head too when you're when you're well, when I, I should say when I, when I was like learning how to navigate and I'm still learning how to navigate the system, but I'm also trying to get, be really, um, like steadfast in what I think I need as a creator and, and prioritizing that. Like, I'm not really interested in, in making them feel better. Like I'm great to collaborate and all that stuff, but like at a certain point, um, I just think that there needs to, I, I just think that we can choose to work with people who are kinder and gentler. And I'm like, if I'm going to work with men of a certain age, of a certain privilege, you know, I, they have to be gentlemen, I think. Um, and if they're not, I don't really, I'm not really out here trying to make them feel better about their lives. Yeah, we're, we're, there's a reason that you see in, I mean, there's a reason that Rob Schneider is in every fucking Adam Sandler project, <laughs> as well as when you see the people who are on the crew or who are in production, it's the same mm-hmm. names. There's a reason that 
Bill Maher has had a lot of the same dudes in his room on, I, mm-hmm. I, I think on a few of his shows, um, politically incorrect and the one he has now, like there's a reason that when you look at late night talk show hosts who, um, almost all of whom are white cis men, um, there's a reason that you see names that are used over and over again. And it's, it's not because these individuals at the top are white cis men. It's because people bring their crew with them. They bring the people who came up with them. Um, Molly Ivins used to say the, the late, great, uh, the late, one of my heroes, the late, great humorist writer, Molly Ivins uh, used to use this old, she said it was a something they say in Texas, and I've actually heard that before. She say, "You got to dance with them that brung you." So you 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 take care of your people. Your people take care of you. Mm-hmm. Your people in this case means probably people you came out of college with, came out of the stand up scene with, came out of whatever TV show you all bonded with, and so they're a lot when it's white cis men, it's probably going to be a lot of other white cis men because that's who they were surrounded by. That's who they bonded with. That's who they see themselves in. And if they're going to give somebody else a shot, it's probably going to be somebody who, to the earlier point, look, reminds me of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, that's not an issue if that was the if that was just it. Right. But the issue, it is very complex. The idea is that like, that only becomes an issue when only white men are allowed to progress in the system because mm-hmm. then they bring all white men into the system and now the system's white. There's and like a farm team system. It's like baseball and, and it's white, 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 white. So, and then maybe once in a while they, you know, somebody else gets to penetrate that. But so what we're talking about here is not just about, you know, being, it's not just about, it is of course about being the only woman director somebody's worked with because that's huge. But chances are, I'm guessing one of the only people of color on set and certainly one of the only black people on set, maybe the only black woman on set in some situations. Yeah. Most situations. Like that's not, that's, (laughs) that's not, um, you're not being like, uh, hyperbolic when you say that, like Often I am. And every now and then you get uh, black women in like uh, head of wardrobe and, and makeup um, and they're fucking stellar at it. But like in terms of who's on set all the time and like or anyone like sh- uh, like making the calls. There's been so many times where I feel like set up a shot and someone's like, aren't you an extra? And I'm like, oh, how could I? How could I have gotten this far <laughs> to the middle of the set? That's horrible. Background is why is background setting up a shot with seeming technical knowledge? <laughs> you know, or like I've been told that you know I'll set up a call, a shot, and they'll be like, oh, I didn't. I guess you're more than a pretty face in front of like the entire like. Ew. I mean, this is like normal. And if you say anything about it, it's like, oh, well, you don't understand the game. Well, you don't understand the business. This is how the business is. Oh, she's sensitive. She doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, okay, I get it. I get the business is trash. I understand. I think there's another way to navigate it. Like, I almost like, it's part of me almost doesn't like talking about how horrible the majority of the business is because I'm trying to find the folks that like actually aren't horrible and dead inside and understand that there can be a, a collaboration between art and, and uh, business. And like, I want to highlight those people. 
Well, who are some of the people that you would love to have on your team to work with, to work, to work for, if they're in a hiring position, um, to hire, like who are some people, and this will not be comprehensive because I know, first of all, you know, probably a zillion and we don't want, and we're not here to hurt anybody's feelings, but just, just a sample of like dream team, Sam gets to design Sam gets to be the show creator, showrunner, director. You, know, you can do craft services if you want in this theory. <laughs> like, who are some? And they don't have craft services anymore after. <laughs> Just prepackaged McDonald's lunchboxes. Yeah. Look, I am like, I also, before Dear White People, so I directed on Dear White People at the beginning of last year and then joined the room as a producer at the end of last year. Um, and before that was very much like, I don't want to be in a room. I hear the worst horror stories about like being in a room with someone who hates themselves and therefore makes the room hate themselves. Um, and I was so lucky because Justin Simeon and Jack Moore ran that room with like so much, it's not even kindness. Like I'm not trying to get like someone to like, you know, hold my hand through things, but it's just, there's a level of respect between all the artists that are there. The room very much reflects uh, the, the, the characters that for the story that we're telling. Um, they never wasted our time. They were never disrespectful with our time. And we were all very much like in it together. And when, I, and when that room ended while we were actually in quarantine, I think we all kind of was like, oh, we have to take what this experience was and then make it like, and, and then continue that on because a lot of people don't realize that like there's a different way of running things um, and that you can do it and that you can um, like, I don't know, that you can, you can uplift other black people and queer people and brown people and give them a place where they can get their leg into the, uh, or put their foot in the door really. And I think Justin's like really lovely the way that he runs this room and, and Jack as well. Like they were both, I mean, the first time they were both show running. Um, and to see them kind of step up and be the type of leaders that you want to be in a room, you want to learn from, it feels like a, like a mentorship in that way. Um, I felt really lucky to be part of that. So those two people, I think, are people that I would always want to work with. Um, Shout out to Jack Moore, big Jack Moore fan. And big I, Jack Moore. I met Justin, but lovely. You're in see amazing things. Yeah, and I'm th- and there are other people. I'm sure I don't meet a lot of them. Um, <laughs> that's what like I'm trying to find, and I'm actively being like, okay, I need to just kind of focus on my own projects because that's kind of to to get there. I think. Um, what are who are some actors that they may be people um, you've worked with, they may be people you haven't, but would dream of working with because you would really. Michaela Cole. I have to watch her show. It's on. It's it's. It's so, ready on Amazon. I have to say that I've been singing Michaela Cole's praises for years now since chewing gum. Also, because like I love the story. I'm a theater kid. Like I, I went to school for theater, I went to college for theater. So anyone that comes from that like lineage, I'm really excited about. But I was just really excited about the idea of a another type of black woman, another depiction of another type of black woman. Um, and so I've always been a fan of chewing gum. Was afraid to watch I May Destroy You. Watched, I'm, I'm, yes, four episodes and I'm like destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it works. And I am. Um, she's so lovely. Like, or I don't know if she's lovely. I've never met her, but I'm like, her work is so lovely. And I think the way that she works is very interesting to me. And like her kind of like, she goes away and writes it on her own and then comes back and it's very like 
this is how I want to make the world. And I don't know how hard her process is. I don't know who her producers are or whatever, but I, to see that is helpful for another creator that's like of that age range. I'm like, oh, if she can do it, then maybe I can do that. Um, Naomi Aki I love, Journey Smollett I love. Um, there's just so many. Marquis Richardson from Dear White People. Most of the Dear White People cast, I mean, all the Dear White People cast. <laughs> I, I love them all. Like They're just like fun actors who like really have put in the work and it really saddens me sometimes because the industry doesn't think that Black actors have any value. Like the amount of times that we have conversations where they're like, oh, well, their mar- market value isn't this or that or this or that. When the reality is like their market value isn't high because we don't cast them in leads. Like they can't have a market value if we don't value them. Um, <laughs> and I think that's been one of the many issues with being out here. It's like, oh yeah, I want to tell stories that are diverse in the makeup, but probably will always center a black woman around the age that I am <laughs> at whatever point that I'm like writing and stuff. And so it's really hard sometimes when you're like, I have to fight to get a black woman that might look like me, like dark skinned black woman, 30, 29, any of that. And it's hard because the industry doesn't, doesn't care about them. So like fighting to tell those stories is really, is, is a difficult fight. I think to, about, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say that it's like the only fight now that I'm like willing kind of to have. I'm like, there's so many different fights and I'm like, I'll just, I'll fight for us in that way. Cause I think it's really important. Um, and I stopped acting because there were no roles for black women of that age. And I, and once I realized that I could create them, I was like, Oh, that's my kind of my calling. So I kind of have to, that's gotta be like my fight out here. I've been thinking about this recently. It's something I've thought about over the years and talked about with, um, one of our past, one of our past guests, Valerie Harvey, who's at mm-hmm. Mohawk underscore make, is she at underscore? I don't know. Mohawk makeup, on, Mohawk makeup on, um, on Instagram. Mm-hmm. We had a long conversation. It was like a two hour episode, which was too long. Uh, but it was really interesting and really fun for me to have the conversation. I just, people tend to drop off listening at a certain point. But anyway, the point is, um, she's a black woman. She was born and we've been friends for many years and she was born in Panama and then as an infant was brought to sunny Alabama and then grew up in South Los Angeles. And, um, she's a hair and makeup artist. She's brilliant. And I'm struck time and time again that black hair and makeup artists are expected to do everybody. They have to be able to do everybody they don't have the luxury of shying away if they're like i can't do a 1a curl if that's even a curl <laughs> <laughs> um, i can't do it it's the curl pattern it's not curvy enough it just really <laughs> creeps me out like they can't say that like they can't say i only will do could you imagine that when I was like oh i can't light white people it's too weird yeah <laughs> but white hair and makeup artists are like, have the luxury of being like, that's, I can't do it. Can you come camera ready? Cause I don't, uh, you know, at least with hair, you know, now there are um, more inclusive skin tone lines, like God bless you, Rihanna, but there are also other, like other lines as well that are smaller and lesser known and they've been there for longer. But um, so, but you know, I, I've heard for years, like, 
people saying to actresses, well, the white actress is going to get full hair and makeup saying to black actresses, like just come hair totally. We'll do touch-ups, like just come fully. And it's because she's like all fucked up on multiple levels, but also can we talk about black women being so fucking gorgeous, no matter what, that they could step on and, from yeah. the and look better than the white women that got their hair. They're like, hello, I'm stunning. How are you? Yeah, like I, yes, I'm naturally stunning, but still fucking do my hair. Like, yeah. And it's, it's even, it's not like people are showing up expecting a hair and makeup artist to like deliver box braids in 30 minutes or less. Like that's not what is going to like, just, it's just the simple aspect of, and especially also if someone has natural hair, they're mm-hmm. like, I mean, they get so freaked out and forget trying to do it when a black woman comes in with natural hair and, and the, the crew is unprepared to like deal with it with a green screen, for example, like how do we get it? I'm just confused. Yeah. I mean, it's just like a lack of thought period. And a lot, and a lot of times it's because there's not black people on the other side of the, of the camera, you know, like they think they're doing such a good job because they're like, Oh, we like, colorblind cast this role or whatever but then no one on the other side can actually like deal with what it takes when you actually cast people of color you expand um the palette of people that are going to be in front of the camera and i think that's another big issue because it's not enough for me to just cast black people in roles when you're not thinking I just think you have to think more holistically about it. And there needs to be people that, um, and, and not to say, look, I, I've said numerous times, all skin folk and kin folk. There are people that have like come up through the system also who've had to then take on what the system is and they're not allies, unfortunately, or not even allies. They're just like other people that, you know, black people who I actually think sometimes do harm for like new black people coming into the system. And so it's just like a layered thing of like, you know, when they say like the patriarchy doesn't just affect women, it affects men. It affects like, there's so many layers of it that like that, that, that almost there's like a cancer in it that affects anyone (laughs) that has to kind of take it on and and grow through the process. And I think that that is why we're kind we keep getting this at a standstill. It's like, okay, we'll, we'll do black Panther. And then, but still not understand that, like that that's not a one-off. Mm-hmm. That doesn't fix it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't fix it. But I think like they really think that they've done a great job for the next like ten years. Like Hollywood is shook right now that people are that black artists are saying, "Hey, um, this is a racist industry." They're like, "What?" But we donate to Hitler. <laughs> they don't. They can't like wrap their heads around it. Um, but I'm sure that if those, um, oh God, I'm like back into talking about them, which really <laughs> irritates me. You, we can stop talking about them, whoever. It's just like, it, the only reason why it irritates me is just because it's like, it's a conversation. I feel like we have this conversation and I say it and you say it and it feels very clear to us, right? And it's really, they're having a really hard time um, coming to terms with any type of uh, taking responsibility for any interactions. And so it's like a really, actually, it's a really difficult time to be in the business right now. Like the amount of conversations that have to happen on the other side that's not being had publicly um it's been really difficult how do you manage the stress of when you are deputized to be the explainer or the interpreter the interpreter of maladies one might say Mm -hmm. uh, how do you 
handle that because my guess would be that that happens sometimes. Like, Sam, explain why. What is it like for you as a Black woman? And maybe it's not always in a room of all white execs or all white writers turning and looking at you with big eyes or like falling asleep and clearly mm-hmm. not paying attention. But I feel like Black people who operate at work in mostly white spaces or socially are, um, and I don't think, I mean, I started hearing stories about this from friends when I was little. So I know it's not something that just, it's a classic thing that happens in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But how, how do you, how do you, how do you manage the, I don't know, I guess the emotional, this is a complex question, um, probably too broad, but like, how do you manage the stress of being suddenly deputized by a magic white wand to explain it all, explain being a black woman, explain being a black person. (laughs) It's, I mean, therapy, I am now doing therapy twice a week. Um, which is very lovely. Thank God for DJ Health Insurance. So. Yes, we love Health Insurance. <laughs> yes, thank you. I will take that. Um, so that's helpful. And my therapist being a Black woman is very helpful to be, able to, to be able to talk and not have to explain it. Be like, as a Black person, I guess like I said Black so much in the last like <laughs> two months, my mouth like, can't move sometimes. Which is weird because you are a, a stunning young white woman. We should have added that. <laughs> Really preserving it well, like doing a lot of moisturizing. Sam Bailey, I would just go by that, see what happens. <laughs> I like the surprise. He um, he didn't play lacrosse. Who is this? <laughs> um, I think uh, I think what I'm doing now, what I'm trying to do now, is to refuse to to answer them. I think that's what I'm like learning to do because it's actually not fair to me to have to hold a white person's hand through this. It's already very traumatic. It's already very draining. It's already, um, this is not new to me. And, and often like, this is a new thing for me to be able to be like, I'm actually going to disengage. Um, often I would be like, well, it's okay. Or like (laughs) try to like, there was a producer who like cried on the, like a Zoom call with me, this white man. And I was just like, and I get it. Like, I think he's like truly is, is real for him. Like he doesn't understand what's going on and there's these emotions and he's crying. And, but I'm like, I can't take that on. And I think you should probably talk to your therapist, right? <laughs> I, I, I think that's like the best that I can do is to not engage because um, how like the audacity is kind of how I feel. Like the audacity to ask me to explain this to you. The audacity to uh, have me like hold your hand through my most torturous uh, moments so that you understand the gravity of the situation. That's insane to me um, that we're asked to do that. It's just now becoming insane to me. I think before I was just like, oh, this is just part of it. And now I'm like, it's not I'm drawing a line. Uh, you just maybe not won't get it, like in contact with me for weeks <laughs> when that's the case, you know, because I can't. I don't think it's fair to us to to have to do that. And and I need all the energy that I can to uh, to be there for my community and to be there for myself, I think. What are some steps that you take every day to take care of yourself? 
And I know we don't always hit all of the ideal mm -hmm. things every like I'm, for example, looking at a list right now that's like, okay, I'm going to try to drink 80 ounces of water and mm -hmm. got to take Prozac, got to, okay, did meditation, sweeping yeah. and vacuuming, like, you know, all of those, yeah. because I, am I going to do all those things? No, but I'm going to do some of them. So what for you in an ideal day, what do you try to do to take care of yourself? Ideally, I don't look at my phone in the morning. I don't read the news in the morning. I do, like on the best, my best days, I wake up, I turn on music, I turn on, and then I'll like make a cup of coffee. I've, I've been buying all these like pour over sets and matcha things. Your hair is gorgeous. Oh, thank you. It's huge <laughs> right now. It's, it's all, uh, I just took it down listeners. It's all, um, it's all brushed out, uh, right now. It's so it's like to be curls. <laughs> um, actually, thank you for asking. So <laughs> I'm sort of like, um, I would say like, uh, probably like a three, a three B, like yeah. a, somewhere between like a Zendaya and like a Holly Berry, which makes me feel really connected to this conversation. <laughs> so I can understand, you know, <laughs> I really get it. There, there, uh, uh, Sarah, Sarah Jones does these characters. Have you seen her, um, her wait let me look at this because i want to see she does she's been doing these things on instagram which are really great and she does these characters where they talk about um it, at listeners by the way she's at she's a wonderful theater artist and you've seen her on the tv and the such and she's a producer and she's a tony winner it's uh, at yes i am sarah jones and she's great and she does this one character who has that? Is it called vocal fry? What is that called? Oh, vocal fry. Yeah. That, and, and like that. Yes. And yeah. she, she does one character who's this very well-meaning white girl who's like, you know, I just like really feel like I understand everything that's happening. And it's kind of great. I can't do it because it's Sarah Jones and she's brilliant. I feel like that's close. That's okay. But she's, <laughs> and she'll just switches like that's she reminds me i know i'm diverting right now but she reminds me of um uh in a way well it's not the same thing but I, the first time i saw somebody do um a one-woman show of characters commenting mm -hmm. on real world news was anna devere smith and oh, yeah. Yeah. When I was like, I mean, I must have seen her on TV sometime in the 90s and and then later in college because I'm 39. So it, I'm trying to think of when she did a what series. It? Yeah, the, it was about the riots, right? Or she's done a couple of one woman shows. But I yeah, she did. I think it was I'm looking her up right now. Listeners, um, I think it was called Fire in the Mirror or Fires in the Mirror. So I wanted to say some fires in the attic, and I was like, I think that's what in the attic. <laughs> Flowers in the attic is about little white children making out with each other. <laughs> Flowers in the attic is about fingering your siblings, Not and it is in, <laughs> it is so popular. Uh, it is a heartwarming let's talk about flowers in the attic a heartwarming tale what's the name who's the, the author i used to read a lot of those <laughs> uh vc andrews vc andrews there's always like some chick with the name star or <laughs> yes <laughs> and after vc andrews died i think they still like kept using the name yeah. they were like 
we've really got something here. This brother and sister are going to fuck. And that's like every fucking, every V.C. Andrews book. And mind you, I've read a few of them. I've read, I mean, and as a, like a young person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was youthful when I read them and I was like, this is makes sense. Um, Anna Devere Smith, who has, has not yet favored us with a one woman production of flowers in the attic. (laughs) Tragically. Um, She won the drama desk award for outstanding one person show two years in a row. So for fires in the mirror, which was about the 1991 crown Heights riot, she interviewed over a hundred people and she embodies these characters in the show listener. Um, And then in 92, she, really took it up a notch and interviewed 300 people in order to create Twilight Los Angeles, which is, is also beautiful, which is about the LA right. Yeah. Could you imagine just the amount of time and care it takes to be able to do that? Um, there are not enough NEA grants in the world. Yeah. Oof. I think she's dope. She's incredible. And so she was the first person I ever saw. Cause I, 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 I'm, well, didn't grow up uh, acting or anything. And, she was the first person, although I've, I've done a little, I, I act like twice a year when a friend is like, do you want to come hang out at my job? And it's like a show that they have. And I'm like, yeah. And I get to say like five things and I don't have to really memorize much. And I get my hair and makeup done. It's very exciting. Um, that's my acting <laughs> career. That. It's so <laughs> fun. It's the most <laughs> relaxing acting career. I just shop. I'm like, this is the best. Ooh. Yeah. In career where I like don't have to audition and you get to give me the world. Like but only for a little bit. Like I don't want to do it for, for what is that called? It's called um uh what it's when when you don't have to audition, when you're like, I don't audition. Oh, they it's like an offer only type of Yes, like, that's yeah. me. I'm like yeah, yeah, I'm an offer only type of bitch. I'm an offer only type of bitch. I will be working for scale. Uh, you'll have to you will have to offer it to me i will not be i've never booked an audition in my life i think of all the times i auditioned for the daily show in my 20s and my early 30s and 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 i just was like i'm never gonna book this this is fun though like i was like the execs i was like you guys are fun i'm not we we know i'm not gonna get this it's fine i did a like i I played the only (laughs) tv show i've ever been on was i think it's Chicago fire. Ooh. Did you set a fire? Were you the fire? Did you fight a fire? No, I was secretary. And I think like I talked, something happened and I got blown up. You know, it cut to the. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's. I don't really know, but I paid, you know, that money got me a laptop. So that's what happens in Chicago when there's fire. Secretaries are constantly blowing up. (laughs) They should really investigate that finally. Uh, anyway so well who did you you are a theater kid and that makes sense you grew up in chicago which is the home of some of the most extraordinary theater in the whole wide world yes preach it were you a kid uh, auditioning for roles like how did your experience with theater go in chicago i was like very it was it started around the time i was like 14 15 i knew i was going to be an artist i thought i was going to be like a musician um and then that went away because um, I like wanted to be TLC. <laughs> I wanted to be all of them though. And 
And that, that didn't work. I wasn't working out. Like the, the like three, what is it? The three graces or something like it's like, or it's like being all three women and the three of cups in tarot. Listen, um, I'd like to introduce you to my crystal collection. I'm into it. Um, did not work out. So it's the, you know, it, it's the, it, the ego and the superego. <laughs> yes. And so, and around that time I was like, yeah, this isn't what I want my career to be. Um, and so back then Steppenwolf used to have a teen ensemble where they like pair you with an actor that's been working at Steppenwolf and you'd have a mentor. Oh, that's so, so cool. I was like a year too young to audition for it. And I just pretty much like begged them to let me audition. Um, and they did. And I got in. And so that was the beginning of like my theater life. And then from there, I, did, I joined a, a group. I was always like part of these like weird ensembles where you like wrote your own show. And like very early on, I got empowered as an artist. Um, and then went to college and it kind of changed, but because it was like theater is very, I like got into theater in a very rebellious way and then went to college and learned all like the classical stuff of theater and, and still ate that shit up. So, like still loved it and trained again at Steppenwolf and was very much like, this is going to be my life. I was like, I, I, I can see a world in Chicago. There's so many like working actors in Chicago who also teach and are, um, live a full life. And I was like, oh, that's what I'll probably end up doing um and then like six years ago seven years ago I was in a play where I got asked to twerk in a slave costume um Jesus and there was so much shit that was like fucked up with it outside of that actually (laughs) outside of that request um like if that's if twerking in a slave costume is the tip of the iceberg the iceberg is fucked that's yeah bad and I just remember being like asking over and over like why do I have to do this? Or like, can you put this in the context for me so it feels comfortable? And it happened. And when I kind of, I, I like walked away from the show, they were like, you know, you were difficult to work with. You just had an issue and you'll probably never work in this town again. Which broke my heart also because like Chicago theater is full of like, there's big houses, there's Steppenwolf, there's Goodman, there's Looking Glass, but it's also full of a lot of small houses of people who think they're important. Like, right. because the community is so, it's so, tight like that um and after that, that was the last play I did and or the second to last play I did and then I started doing You're So Talented and it changed like my, the trajectory of my life but what was good about my theater background and having all of that is that I like over and over and over again learn about character learn about story learn about how I would like an ensemble to act um or carry themselves which is how i carry like my crew my crew access as like an ensemble on set you know um so that was like things i wouldn't give up but theater in chicago i both loved it and it broke my heart over and over and over again and i think a lot of it broke my heart because i'm a black woman and fitting into that wasn't um wasn't easy well it feels like uh the story of the last draw in a in a passionate but ultimately poisonous relationship mm-hmm. that that story that you just told feels like the stories that you hear when somebody explains to you why they finally walked away yeah yeah and i'm like the kind of person or I, particularly back then it was really hard for me to walk away from um i considered like my relationship with theater an abusive relationship it was a you know, you work so much for so long for no money and you 
make yourself think that it's okay because this is just this is the hustle and this is what it is and um a lot of times there are predators that kind of lurk in those type of communities because they know that people are passionate about it or they know people like are desperate to a certain extent particularly actors um to to get a role to be good to get validation and then those kind of people grow and fester and i think take advantage of that um and that i've had great experience in theater and i've also had for every great experience i feel like i've had three horrible experiences um or been close to it and seen it and like all that shit that you're just like oh i don't know what it is i think anything with a structure that's hierarchical that is patriarchal ends up getting tainted in some way um like the power people like get off on power and they get off on fucking with people um but they, the, there are really a lot of danger and harm which i think is obviously reprehensible and the predation that occurs is not just sexual in nature um is not just uh you know not just in terms of somebody being covered up as a physical abuser, a sexual harasser, a, a molester, a rapist, these things that often make headlines, is also there's an economic predation about it. There's the idea that you should feel lucky that you're getting paid at all to do this. You're not laying brick. Fucked up. Yeah. So here's Yeah. It is. And so it's like here's and I see this in the arts a lot, and I think you see it particularly applied to people who represent a minority in the arts, which in most spaces, they're white-dominated, whether we're talking about a nonprofit art space or a for-profit art space. So the people who are considered extra lucky to even get a seat at the table are, are people of color. And, and, and black people in particular, I think, which is absurd because there's a wildly thick, rich, beautiful history of black artists in theater in this country. I mean, this country's theatrical foundations are inextricably interwoven with black Americans. Yes, which I think particularly gets me upset about Hollywood. <clears throat> Because I'm like, oh, it's wild to me that one of the, you know, filmmaking is actually a very, very young art form. Um, and it's kind of insane to me that in 2020, Hollywood has dictated what a movie is and what, a story, and what stories deserve to get, tell, get told and how much they value those stories. And it's really those people who are greenlighting the stories that we get to see, um, that we get to take in. And... I think it's really important that there are a multitude of different types of stories and different types of creators out there because that's how people see themselves. And white people have seen themselves in a million different ways. So they can be so many things and, and, and have empathy for even like the worst type of the amount of like the anti-hero that there's so many white male anti-heroes and we have empathy for them because we get to see the inners of their, of their psyche. Like Tony Soprano, who uh, the late, great James Gandolfini embodied so beautifully. That character was an anti-hero. People fucking loved him. And, and he was uh, a murderer and could be abusive yeah. and all sorts of other things. And this is not to say that um, Tony Soprano sucked as a character. He's an amazing character. But when do we get to see a black character who is critically acclaimed, popularly beloved, and who is permitted to be 
more than um, a villain or a saint. Yes. Uh, Nuance is something we don't allow, uh, I think, Black people in in cinema in this country or in in real life. Yeah, at all. And it's interesting you said the villain and the saint thing. There's a filmmaker, Kathleen Collins, who she wrote the book, uh, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love, um, which was was released by her daughter after she died. But she was one of the first Black filmmakers to make a feature. and when she, her, her movie is called Losing Ground, which I think is now finally on Criterion. Um, so you should check it out if you can. But when she finished the movie, like it couldn't get released in the States because they were, they told her they didn't know black people, like, black people didn't exist like that. And it was about, the movie's about like a couple, a black couple, the woman's a professor, her husband's an artist, and it's them going to like upstate New York for the summer and dealing with like relationship stuff. And the industry told her, we don't know black people like that. So then her story didn't get told. Because it was like, I mean, I don't know that it was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but it was because it was a romantic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not romantic, but it was a a twisted rom-com. But like, because it was about relationships and it wasn't about trauma. I mean, and it is about, I mean, there's so many ways that we can explore trauma, right? And I think, but I think Hollywood is very comfortable with like one or two ways of exploring trauma. Um, and it's normally with a white savior and it's normally um, around slavery and it's normally around uh, a, a world where black people, black women in particular are like incredibly strong and incredibly um, uh, able to deal with all the bullshit that is given to them and physical and mental and spiritual bullshit that they have to take on and yet they still like make it out and they're totally fine and i think that type of portrayal for black women specifically um is actually really dangerous that we should be able to against all odds overcome a multitude of violence to us like in many different ways and that's the only way that we have um any type of worth or value, like that's what you're telling, that's what it feels like is being told to us, um, that's really fucked up. It, bring, yeah. it brings up the perfect, the perfect victim thing where when we hear stories about, about rape and sexual assault that we ask that the victim be so beyond pristine and flawless in our um, white heteronormative patriarchal cis version of what that means Mm -hmm. so in order for us to feel bad for them usually it's her in in order for Mm -hmm. us to feel bad for her um or to to believe that she should be given justice that she has to be above and beyond perfect like she can't ever have taken a sexy photograph and and that's how we treat I think black people as a whole and particularly black women, when, when black women speak up about issues, like mm-hmm. were you sweet and shy and retiring and also mm-hmm. symmetrically beautiful in a way that is pleasing to white America? Um, mm-hmm. Then maybe we might listen. Maybe. But maybe you won't. Like it, what actually it shows me is that, you know, you can have a successful black woman, in politics <laughs> and we won't believe her and we can have a like 
a, a beautiful black like trans woman on the street. We don't believe that either. Like it doesn't matter like where we fall on the on the on like the ladder of hierarchy or who deserves more. Like they just I really don't give a shit about black women. Um, I feel that very strongly in in my gut. Um, <laughs> and and any time I felt it and like been quiet about it. And then it comes out that I was like, you were right. Those feelings were valid. I'm like, oh, yeah, that doesn't make me feel better, though. I'm just like, oh, at least I don't feel crazy in it. Well, it must feel a little bit like being Cassandra in the Greek myth of always seeing the future and nobody believing her until it's too late. Who do you think? Oh, go right ahead. Sorry. No, I didn't know that story, but I... Yeah, Cassandra. She was, I forget her exact tale, but she was gifted with sight. She had second sight, but and, and she was tormented in her life as well. But nobody would believe her when she would warn them. And that was her great tragedy. Um, who do you think is getting it right? Who do you love uh, in, in terms of Black creators, um, black showrunners, black directors, like who, and I know there are a lot of people who are doing incredible work. So this is by no means representative of Sam Bailey's faves <laughs> altogether, but who are some people who you've been really intrigued by, influenced by, whether recently or as a kid? I mean, I think... There, there's actually like a little group of filmmakers that I was really, before I like was doing You're So Talented, but was becoming interested in filmmaking that I, I really fucked with. And that those people were like Janiska Bravo, who did Lemon, and um, she did the movie based off that Twitter story that- Yes, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I'm very excited to, to see that. I think she's very interesting um, as, a, as a creator and an artist. Um, Terrence Nance, who did uh, Random Acts of Flyness, like that entire show, everyone's got their hands in there, I think is great. Um, Shaka King, who did New Louise. I just remember watching a movie about these like pothead black couple, couple in New York, and I was like, oh, how come we don't have, we have more of those movies? Like, that's great. I'm so happy this exists. Um, so I think like any artist, particularly any black artist that like dares to be themselves during this time is very, uh, that's very attractive to me. Um, Kathleen Collins was one of those. I like read so many of her letters, and she had so much. I think there was like a level of anger of not being seen before. And she died in her forties too of cancer, so she died before people like started loving her books and found her scripts and stuff like that. Um, and I think, you know, she always talks about the the nuances of black characters and how we're not villains or saints or sinners or saints and i just i just remember reading her stuff and reading her journal entries and being feeling like the first time like oh this is what i believe in and i didn't i thought it was weird but there's already people that have been feeling like this in the 60s and the 70s and like this is not a a new feeling and so often you can i have felt like maybe i'm just out here by my own like self and not really understanding what's going on um so i really love her i think like uh, i'm very you know, my peers are other artists that I really, that helped me kind of like stay focused and get excited about things. I'm friends with Shea Coulee. I love what she does as a, she's like elevating drag art. And I think that's very exciting to me to watch. Um, yeah, anyone that like 
it's just like daring to 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 kind of step outside of what's been allowed for us to kind of move in you know like if they're like mm, yeah i see that lane that you've like told me to be in but i'm gonna go fuck around with that lane like that's really interesting to me i like to fuck with those like rebellious people um it's exciting to me part of me is like if i'm gonna be in this industry i might as well like shake some shit up and i'm okay with, like those are the people i'm trying always looking for the people who are doing that if anything just to show that it can be done and besides what we've talked about already, which includes, but is not limited to, um, mm-hmm. therapy, mm-hmm. Uh, avoiding the news in the morning, if not all day, not looking yeah. at your phone in the morning. Yeah. What are some other things? Like, what do you do to prepare for, say, bedtime in the latter part of your day as you're trying to wind down on an ideal day for Sam, an ideal evening? Like, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Uh, you know what? Last night was probably like the best ideal morning I've had the, or evening during this whole quarantine. And it was literally just me dancing to Megan Thee Stallion in my craft t-shirt, drinking rosé, smoking joints around my loft <laughs> and appreciate joyful. It was like a joyful and I don't know what like got me going. I think I was on one off an argument that I had <laughs> and then it ended up being a night where I just like felt like good, like anything that anything that I can be like laughing and joyful around. Um, but normally it's like a lot of weed. I smoke a lot. <laughs> like once it hits about three or four o'clock and I'm done with like all of like my Zoom calls and shit, I'm pretty much high as fuck. Um, it is also- medicinal. It is magical. And it does. It is a deeply helpful thing. It's particularly during now. I'm smoking so much more weed than I normally do, but it's okay. I'm like, there's things that you have to do. Honestly, better that versus I was talking to a friend who said that they were like, they're like, I've been drinking like um, six to eight beers a night. I was like, that's a lot of beers for anybody. For (laughs) anybody. And so, you know, my friends who are smoking weed seem to be generally speaking sleeping better awake better and just like not not that they're happy but they're they i mean i listen you're also audience listening as you know to if you've listened to this show before to the advice of an addict on substances (laughs) but i will just say broadly speak so take it with a huge grain of (laughs) organic celtic sea salt thank you but like I would rather hang out with my friends who are stoned than my friends who are drunk. And that was true when I was drinking too. <laughs> like stone people are way better to hang out with. Young people are, and also like, also drunk people are like scary to me. And I grew up with also alcoholics around me. So like that's a, um, not people that are trying to, are sober or trying to be sober. Yeah. It's, it's a, it can be a horribly aggressive, scary and tra- traumatic. And like, so I, you know that is in you a little bit which i know that like being locked in a place <laughs> for a month at a time i have to be like really active about having different things than than drinking tequila or something like that like i have to make sure i have other options around me because it's a slippery slope for me as well oh i find it with f- uh food and spending um food mm-hmm. and and deading um Mm -hmm. i absolutely find that too like the the stuff that you grew up with um being shown was a way to numb out or Mm -hmm. to self-soothe and of Mm -hmm. course it it, we say a lot in addiction circles you know it works until it doesn't and when you're a child in that environment you see 
you see it stop working. You're very, you're very early on. You become conscious. Oh, that's not, that's not working. There's, there's trouble here. There's stress because of this. Um, so I have to be very conscious of that. And, and that's something that like, I mean, just had therapy yesterday (laughs) and it's very, this is a time that calls for us to be extra vigilant, not hyper vigilant in the way that we are when we come out of traumatic experiences, but extra vigilant for ourselves. That's one reason I, I love talking to people about how they take care of themselves, because I think that there are others who are listening, who appreciate it. And like dancing, also how joyful dancing around a beautiful loft, which is, I'll just say, is not cheap, ladies and gentlemen, in case you were under the impression (laughs) that you have rented with your abundance that is self-created through your creative work. Like that is a joyful act. I I mean, what a wonderful, wonderful thing. It it was, thank you. And I think it's important to have those moments to be like, okay, like I, we were talking earlier, I moved in the middle of, or right before the pandemic. <gasps> yes, I forgot to ask you about that. Oh my God. Yeah, no, it's fine. But I, and I'll give the quick story, which is that like we moved in and my whole thing was that I wanted to, I lived with roommates in Silver Lake and I've never really lived by myself anyway. I've kind of been like this vagabond that's gone, always had like a bag, haven't had shit, you know. Um, but I wanted to, I thought I was going to be filming a movie this year. So I wanted to make sure I had my own space leading up to that. Um, come to find out we plan and God laughs. Um, but still you deserve your own space. Yeah. So I came in here and I had nothing, no furniture or anything like that. And now I'm at a place where I'm like, oh, now I have all this stuff. And it's, you start to feel guilty about that. I don't know. It's, it's wrapped up in a lot of emotions because I think this might be the first safe place I've had in my entire life and I'm 31 years old um, right now and I'm like feeling that and when things feel like super crazy or chaotic I think I try to remind myself of um, the safe place I've created for myself Um, also I will say in terms of just like how we are coping I'm like fiery I get really heated sometimes easily and like can quickly move on to like one thing to the next thing the next thing and I'm learning now with my therapist of trying to find time to um to pause in between things to take to separate um yourself so that you're not spiraling into things you know like I'll be on sometimes I'll be like back in the day in the, in the room I'd be like in the room and then I'd be on a call with other producers and then I'd be back in the room and then I was pissed off because of that and the quarantine was happening and then I would just spiral and I'm like, Sam, you can actually put the day before you respond to that. Email. You can actually take like more than a day and just giving yourself the space. I think to, to not have to be at anyone's beck and call if you can, if that's within your career to be able to do that um, has helped me exponentially. Um, yeah. Cause when we approach a career in survival mode, Mm-hmm. Um, where you had to respond right away in order to protect yourself. And when we carry that out, it, it, it conveys messages that we don't intend, like I'm always available to you. Mm-hmm. And it also, and then of course, if you're in a situation where you're dealing with people who automatically assume that you're always available to them, mm-hmm. then you're inadvertently playing into their, their narrative about that. And also by the end of the day, you're running on fumes. And so it, the, your adrenal glands alone are exhausted. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. And then that's when I'm like slipping and I'm not having fun and I'm like smoking, chain smoking cigarettes, which I've been stopping since we've been in quarantine. But like, I know that that's my trigger. It's like anytime I feel like I'm going to call, white men are my trigger, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just the most appropriate thing I've ever heard. That's so appropriate for the, like. <laughs> Can that be your memoir title? If it's my if, my men are my trigger. A people, you know, I mean, right <laughs> during the gold rush of the the publishing industry being like, wait, black books sell. Uh, I feel like now is the time to sell your book proposal. White men are my trigger. <laughs> A frank conversation yeah. about race. <laughs> about Jack Moore. <laughs> exactly about Jack Moore. And Jack will be like. Oh my god! I know. That's exactly. So sorry. And do I? Do you want to talk about it? <laughs> That's a great Jack. Impression. Thank you, Jack. By the way, if you're listening, Jack Moore is a delightful human who's extremely tall, and comes very, to us from Ohio. Very Midwestern. Very like, and just emerged from a, a some a Catholic womb, literally and figuratively, in Ohio to come be an out bisexual writer, producer, showrunner. That always cracks, cracked, cracks me up so much that Jack's like working on dear white people. Like in, in a, in a, in a seat of power too. No, but he's actually, people should just, that's what I have good white people in my life. And I think if other white people need to figure out how to be better, they should just talk to them and not talk to me, like figure it out. Go talk to Jack, go talk to Sarah, go talk to <laughs> like figure it out that way, you know? Yeah, I think it's good to have. And that's something that, that, you know, there's obviously people have conversations and I understand debating the validity of white fragility and, and, and Robin D'Angelo, uh, you know, working and being paid significantly as a, as a, um, anti-racism trainer, um, in mostly white spaces. And I understand that. I understand that there's an argument to be made that that's not who should be paid and an argument to be made that that is who should be paid from reading that book, which is uh, one of the super popular books right now. Um, one thing I really appreciate about that book is that she always starts with I, I, as a white woman, when I walk into a space, here's what I can expect. Here's how people are. Here's what I don't think about. She makes it very personal in that way, not centering herself um, in terms of um, in a shitty way, but using herself as the vehicle through which other white people can see ourselves and go, Oh fuck. And one point that she, that she makes that's that I've heard plenty of black women make as well is like, when I ask my black friend or my Latinx friend, is this appropriate? I am putting labor on them that is unpaid. So I should at least Venmo them for it. She doesn't say that, but, um, but I should talk to other, talk to other white people first to work out those feelings and deal with that shit. Not because the other white person is going to have the answer, but if it's another mm -hmm. white person who's trying to also unlearn, racism yeah. as much as possible start there and then figure out a way to um make a sincere apology and um engage in in repair if possible so mm -hmm. talking to other 
good whites. <laughs> uh, or PWs, the quality whites. Quality or, whites. <laughs> talking about their qual- whites of quality. And I'm um, not out giving out QW patches. I will say that. Like, yeah. There are white people that I think are good, but I'm like, don't. <laughs> like also, they- even if, if you are a, a white of quality, um, <laughs> we still grow up, you know, like you can be. See, now this is now this becomes complicated because I was going to use a stormtrooper metaphor, but John Boyega was a stormtrooper. So it's all different now. Everything's fine. Um, But it's like, even if you're a good stormtrooper. okay, let's go pre John Boyega being a stormtrooper. Even if you're a good stormtrooper, you're still a stormtrooper. So you still have to you still have to you were if you were born and raised as now enough Star Wars people up my ass being like, actually, you are recruited by the Imperial Command, but you do have choice. Fuck off. Okay. So you know, as much as I I try or my friends try to be whites of quality, that that Mm -hmm. is a lifelong commitment. That's not something that um, and nobody gives you a trophy. (laughs) There's no trophy. No, though I think that there are some men in the industry who are like working for a trophy. They're trying to get a trophy. They um, are. I see it with with um, some men who are, and not 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 all men. Um, if you're a man who's a, a feminist and you're committed to intersectionality, that's a beautiful thing. And this is not about you, yeah. but you can tell. And some of you men listening know who these men I'm talking about are. You can just tell they're in the space when it becomes performative because um, they want like pussy, like you can tell, or or they want accolades. Ugh. And it, you know what's so fucked up is that like <laughs> I'm just thinking of I had someone tell me a story about this um, white actor that won't be named, but like uh, has a thing for like black women, and you go to their house and they have a like how to eat out <laughs> pussy books or like feminist books like everywhere, and you're just like okay, I get it, I get it. You're you're a feminist, you're woke. All you, right, you bought the things, and I appreciate the that they're you that they're sure there. That you're open on the coffee table. <laughs> I I won't fuck a white actor unless I go to his house and on his coffee table and it's like um um sex at dawn about polyamory or whatever. I forget if that's what it's called, but then I'm also going to need I'm going to need white fragility to be there. No matter what color he is, I need white fragility to be there. That's my kink. <laughs> white white women leading anti-diversity trainings is my kink. So I need that. <laughs> I'm also going to need, I will need an abundance. Everything Roxanne Gay has ever published. Yes. And just for me, (laughs) what I'm into, I'm going to need like a Sandra Cisneros book. That's all. I don't know why. Sandra Cisneros. She's so great. That was my (laughs) It's so good. That's what I need. Everybody, this show is about me and my sexual needs. (laughs) When I walk into a famous actor's house. Post. The riots, how to have sex, po- how to date post-corona. Like, all those are real things. And at first, it was like, after Trump got elected, it was like, well, I'm definitely not fucking Trump supporters or people that didn't vote. And now it's like, I can't fuck, fuck Trump supporters, people who didn't vote, uh, <laughs> people who don't wear masks. <laughs> There's, like, so many things that you have to be like, oh, yeah, like, and I have to check this, this, and this. People be on that hiding shit. I do a deep dive as well. I don't do a deep dive. What I do is this. Um, I figure out if I match with somebody, I'm like, hmm, do I potentially know anybody 
in mm-hmm. common. And then I will ask that person as a background check. But also I do a Google and I just look at the first two pages of results. And mm-hmm. um, of course I look at the mutuals on Instagram. I look at their tagged photos on the gram. And even with that, you can still be raped and killed and left in a ditch. Uh, so, you know, it's exciting being a lady, but with somebody recently I was connecting with on who's hinge and I was having a nice chat with them. This was months, a few months ago. And then I went, I was like, Oh, time to do the background check. Didn't know anybody in common, nothing suspicious on the, on the social. Mm-hmm. So, but on the first two pages of Google results, this is somebody who had been um, ejected from their, their industry and they were an athlete. Um, and so not permitted to compete in the Olympics um, because they had been accused um, by somebody who filled out all the forms and sent all the forms to all the official places of, um, in their thirties having sex. So, you know, legally a statutory rape with, uh, somebody who was 14 and 15, who was in their industry, was in their sport and then threatening them about talking about it. And so this is the person with whom I've had some nice conversations over the past like week. And I was late. You got to do it early. You got to do it. The first time you feel interested in the chat after, after there's a little bit of a chat, you have to do the Google early. So I just, uh, stopped responding, shall we say. Yeah. I mean, as you have to, I like it. So I'm like, if people Google me, they can Google me because what I say in interviews is pretty much the way I speak. I'm like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not really good at like changing my tone and stuff like that. So I'm like, at least you know what you get in. You're going to get into Like, I'm probably going to burn some shit down. Um, I'm obviously liberal. <laughs> like there are things that are like just going to check. I mean, but hope, hopefully you don't find a rapist or. or <laughs> yeah. Like I think if you do mine, you're not going to find you. You'll undoubtedly find some offensive and ignorant shit at some points yeah. in, in my career yeah. and in my yeah. life. Yeah. There. But that's about it. I mean, it's like <laughs> my, KK, my KKK membership is known. Yeah. Um, but you'll find some stupid shit. You'll find some problematic shit where you're like, that's, that was ignorant and dumb. And I'll be like, correct. Um, in the life of a stand-up comedian, you're probably going to find some of that shit. But um, you won't find any like murders or, or me doing rapes. So that's good. Yeah. yeah, doing rapes. There's not a lot of hate. Or violence. There's some yeah. popping off in a stupid admiration. Yeah. The you'll find a lot of like really intense standing for Josephine Baker and uh, Frederick Law Olmsted. Um, yes. Love him. Big fan. Louise. What now? You know Jeez Louise? No. She's a burlesque performer. Um from Chicago, or she's from St. Louis, New Orleans, Chicago. She thinks she's in New Orleans now, but she's like number one in the world. This little black girl who's like insane, and she could do some Josephine Baker stuff. <gasps> well, she's Josephine Baker's from St. Louis, or was Saint, from St. Louis. You should. And lived- that could be a fun interview for you. <gasps> I would like- love. Oh my god, I would freak out. Yeah, she. You should look up her social media because everything that she like is all out there. So look up her social media. Jeez Louise, um, she's hilarious, talented as fuck. And she's like a burlesque, black burlesque queer person. She started the Jeezy's Juke Joint, which is like one of the only black um, burlesque shows, like traveling burlesque shows at all in the industry. So I think that's an interesting interviewer. 
Oh my gosh, that's great. I would love that. I'm reading. I have on my, my reading list for this weekend because of my reading vacation because we're right before a, a three-day weekend. I have two Josephine Baker biographies because I'm researching uh, her fourth marriage um, for a, a podcast project, which I'm excited about. Um, just taught, I mean, a fourth fourth marriage. I, it's just, she had so much going on. She was a fascinating individual and he was really interesting too. He was a French man and a, her band leader and they fell in love because everybody fell in love with her. Um, they fell in love while doing years of touring to uh, allied forces after, um, after the end of World War II who were still stationed all, all around um, North Africa specifically, but then also Europe. And mm -hmm. she also performed after the liberation of the concentration camp at Buchenwald. She performed for inmates there who were too sick to be moved. And she never spoke about it, to my knowledge, publicly. She never granted an interview about it or spoke about it. So she went with her band. And I believe her fourth, her future fourth husband was the band leader. I'm not positive. But um, her third husband was Jewish. Um, his name was Joe Leon. And they had divorced by then, but um, she was, I mean, she was just amazing. She was deeply, obviously impacted by what she saw at Buchenwald, but she grew up, and I'm probably saying it wrong, Buchenwald. Um, she, you know, was performing for the dead and dying, and she was, grew up with such trauma and abuse, and by 19 was in France by choice, by her own choice, and through her own hard work, and I mean, I could why I'm like the Corona shit is are also really fucked up in the way Trump runs the country because we can't go travel, you know, right now because of his inability to like handle that at all. And I just think about like like the James Baldwin's and the Josephine Baker's who like went to France to like get a little reprieve mm -hmm. from the world right now like these creative people who are like actually can't be in the states right now because it's too hard yeah and where they went it was still they still and they you know talked about they, it was still fucked up but it was better it was better it was it was way less fucked up and and it was still fucked up but it's less fucked up but there's a part of me that also is feeling that and also like some of the other like black creatives that i know are like i wish i could leave right now oh yeah of course i mean if if, if people have international passports and can leave this country right now. I'm like, get go, like go forth. Okay. They're not letting us in because of the <laughs> True, so exactly. It's like like New Zealand, you can go to, but you have to quarantine for 14 days at a hotel near the airport, and I think that's it. I thought <laughs> everybody else was like, fuck off. Yeah, they're like, for sure. The states, nope. We are going to build a wall around you guys. Well, because um, we have an our abusive national stepdad uh, are like terrible like rapist abusive stepdad is a nightmare and has like ruined our house i mean that's why it's it also i mean listen i could interview you for another thousand years i swear we will wrap up but uh, because you have uh groundbreaking television work to do and stuff and also like dancing to megan the stallion also groundbreaking maybe <laughs> television work her performance on the bet awards was very everything was and was, this is what i want like i want to have the post-apocalyptic Megan twerking on a on a on a mega truck like whatever that it was. <laughs> that like was they funny. must have. I didn't read it. I need to read about the production of it. But I was looking at it. And I was like, I feel like they went out to Palm Springs or something. Yeah. And they got the girls and they got everybody. And 
you would know what kind of camera it is. I don't know how to like explain what kind of camera it is. Um, but oh, like, no, I didn't, I didn't go in on what they were kind of doing. Um, well, no, but you know how, what is that? What is it called? I mean, this is how basic I am. I don't even mean the like brand. I mean, like, what is it called when you've got somebody is it that's a, a like, right. It's a steady cam, right. It's strapped yeah. to them. And so yeah. they can move around. It looks like very, um, like fluid, but they may have been on a crane for that too, actually. So there's a lot of like high, low shoots. If I remember that video, so they could have been on like a, a crane, techno crane. It was so cool. And, and the girls are in, the dancers are in masks and yeah. Megan obviously cannot be in a mask because she has to speak mm-hmm. the truth mm-hmm. to us. And it's just, I just love, I was like, this is perfect that they did this. It's everything I needed. Also, can we talk about, uh, Summer Walker and Usher because I was not like obviously grew like 90s or 90s babies so like I had a crush on Usher but like not one that like I kept thinking about and I was like god damn has this man like gone back in time <laughs> like his singing on Summer Walker I well this like, brings us back to your TLC <laughs> it comes all the way I was I was but a slip of a girl I'm old enough to remember when Usher was dating Chili I do remember that. And which is why I stopped hate I hated him because he talk about someone who has not aged, chilly. Oh my god. Yeah, they both are like ageless sex vampires who once <laughs> loved one another. I remember when Lisa, may she rest in peace, set was it Andre? His house on fire. Yes. <laughs> she set his sneakers on fire, which that's the part of the story that I hope I have it right. Cause I always feel that is a very specific and special detail, which is that it's actually, she set like what I assume were a really nice pair of sneakers. It may have been multiple pairs of sneakers on it fire. Was multiple pairs of sneakers in his bathtub. Yes. <laughs> and that's responsible, but that is responsible because if you're going to set a man's sneakers on fire, which I'm not advocating, but like sometimes they deserve it. Probably. You do it in the bathtub because she was trying to contra- create a controlled blaze with the tile. And I respect that so much. I thought the water was going to be able to and it just Correct. And it just, my guess is that she maybe didn't, I really, I have a lot of questions. I expect that maybe she didn't, she was so mad that she didn't take down because he did some shit. She didn't just oh, do yeah. that. He did something. No, yeah, yeah. He did some shit. All right. Yeah. If, Anybody ever set Jack Moore's sneakers on fire, he would die. He would die. Our oh beloved hype beast friend. Get off this phone and get off this interview and text them like, oh my God, he would he would cry. That would if be he, no if anybody ever does that, I'll have to go. Even if he did some shit, I'm gonna have to go hurt the person who did that because that's the most vicious attack. Except, but in Lisa's case, I just really I mean, you know, some she was channeling some Kali mother destroyer goddess energy and it just got out of hand. And oh, you know, that he deserved it. He for sure <laughs> deserved it. Like she, this is another episode. No one was hurt, and this was like of the '90s where we just saw Angela Bassett like light her Correct. husband. Yes, <laughs> it was a movement that was happening. And yeah, it was a movement for Black women who were fed up to set men's shit on fire, and like. She didn't mean to hurt. Nobody got hurt. I mean, whatever. I don't even know if they broke up, quite frankly. actually advocating for Lisa I'm like, listen, we need to really revisit that. Like Chelsea taught me how to be a woman. She did. Um, <laughs> like, the music was everything to me back then. I was definitely a TLC girl. Oh, they were so wonderful. And educational, too. What they did in the Waterfalls video 
talking about HIV AIDS at the right. time was it was, I mean, there were other, also I think Tisha Campbell plays the mom in the video in the waterfalls video. I'm looking no. this up right now. That's not you guys, who is in that? Somebody famous. There, okay. There's like an older black woman in it. And there's some, there's a man in one who plays like the, the drug dealer that kills her son. Yes, because Tisha Campbell was too young at that time. Who Campbell, was it? I can't remember who, what the name of that actress is, but I understand she does look like Tisha Campbell. I don't think she is. Oh my God, who is it? It was because it was somebody as a little kid. Okay, so this would have, I wasn't that little. I should know this. It was the year of our Lord, 1995. I was 14 years of age. Bokeem Woodbine is in it? There, yeah, yeah. <gasps> Bokeem Woodbine. Holy shit. He's the guy that kills the kid. Oh my. That video is so epic. Why are there so many plot points? That video <laughs> is so involved. Was it Gabrielle Brown? All right, now, all right. Well, now I have to go be insane and go on a deep dive of who the fuck was in <laughs> this fucking. Because when I was 14, I just remember being blown away and being like, Bokeem Woodbine is incapable of not being in important things or doing important work <laughs> from yeah. the ground up. And particularly back then, I feel like like the 90s was such a particular time in cinema where there was like black actors getting to do multiple movies. So like he was huge back then. Oh, it's yeah. Still, still huge. I'm so he's like, I guess, yeah. but that's like amazing to me. I didn't that I didn't know that that's always wild. Yeah, the 90s were I feel like I was I, six years old at that time, Sarah. And I knew. Wow. Oh. wow. Well, I it 20 times. <laughs> you were destined to I mean, you were destined to be I'm so, P.S. I'm fully scrolling through the fucking the fucking um. Oh, uh, uh, the fucking, I, I'm, I fully like disconnected from our beautiful conversation. <laughs> what a disgrace. Ella oh. Joyce is in it. Ella Joyce is in it. TLC had to force LA Reed to get the budget for the music video, which was filmed at Universal Studios, Ho Studios Hollywood from June 8th to 9th, 1995. Oh my God, you guys, I'm out of control right now and I need to calm down. Anyway, I'm sorry. I got really, I really now I'm like, I need to read all about this. Where are the history podcasts? Maybe I'll, my morning will be just TLC music. Yeah, I'm allegedly supposed to like work, but I'm really going to need to focus on, at the end of the video, the young man involved in, with drug gangs appears in ghost form. This is a really well-written Wikipedia entry. Like the Wikipedia page is as long as like, in the TV. <laughs> oh, you know who it was? It was okay. Um, Ella Joyce was on Rock, so which was a really fun uh sitcom that I enjoyed wholeheartedly as a youth. And so she okay, I knew I recognized her, but so I'm a Tisha Campbell would have been like a baby then, yeah. Anyway, we've had a journey. Oh, Tisha Campbell, come. I just I've been like, I rewatched um. What's the, well, two musicals, uh, School Days, and she's in it, and she's great. She's so good. But also, uh, why am I freaked about the plant? Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Give her all her due. She was, she, like, incredibly talented, and she deserves as much of a career as she wants, longer, whatever, she, whatever the fuck she wants, she deserves it. I 
Yeah, she's super. This is a Tisha Campbell stan podcast. This is. is a Lisa Lopez tribute <laughs> affirmation podcast. May we all currently, are we not right now seeing a revolution in which people, black people are setting ablaze the sneakers of the white man in a bathtub? It's yeah. an awkward metaphor. It feels that way, particularly for those blacks that, that grew up in the 90s who remember that. I think there is a, it is etched into our skin, in our heads, in our brain of Angela, of Lisa, and therefore we now know we have the tools um, to combat racism, and it includes fire and, and shoes. And the story is not, because the media story was, oh my gosh, excuse me, Lisa Lopez set the house on fire. She's so crazy. But the real story is what the shit did he do? And exactly. also look at how she tried to do it safely. And we, that's a corollary. <laughs> That is how we must look at media today. Let us yes. focus on what the shit he did. What's the real story? The way they handled Lisa in the beginning is fake news. Correct. Exactly. Well, Sam Bailey, you're <laughs> fucking awesome. I think you're my favorite new person. My new favorite person? You're not a new person, but you are a tiny baby from heaven being, what, 31? 31 years a tiny baby from heaven. You're not even at your Jesus year yet, which is a, Ugh, a sacred year. going to happen then? I might have I to set something on fire. Sure. You'll probably be setting your own mansion on fire and, and I'll be like, <laughs> your friends will be like, don't set your own mansion on fire. It's like, this is really nice. This is a really nice mansion. Um, <laughs> where can humans see more of your work and follow you online if you're into social media? If not, like, I just would love for them to see your web series and various other things. Thank you. Right now, I'm not on social media. I, was, I decided to take a break in December. And Very healthy. Break. Um, but every now and then, I go on um, You're So Talented's Twitter to see what's going on. So you can uh, see You're So Talented is still on uh, Vimeo, YouTube, or just Google You're So Talented. It's up there. Brown Girls, Google it. It's up there for free. Um, where else can you find my stuff? Dear White People's on Netflix now. We're waiting to shoot the fourth season, but it's written and ready to go. So as oh, soon as we can, that'll be ready to go out. Um, and yeah, just take a little break. I think like Black people deserve a little rest right now. I'll have work out soon. Yeah, <laughs> enjoy her oeuvre thus far, which is quite extensive for a youth of, <laughs> of, of three Uno. Um, and, you know, Hopefully by the time I turn 40, which is in October, you'll get to shoot that next season. Although maybe it'll be later. I don't know. I know you can't share any of that, but no, we know it's, it's, I'm not hiding it. We just don't know. <laughs> yeah. You just don't know. Yeah, that's true. We truly have no idea because of the Corona. Yeah. Miss um, Rona entered the chat and really <laughs> disrupted like everyone's plans. And, and, and I mean, it's a great time to review Vintage Sam Bailey. Yes, vintage Sam Bailey. Bailey. So hopefully 2021, you'll see some new Sam Bailey. I'm cool with that. That's like, I'm excited for that. Like right now, I'm, I think I'm just like focusing on, on being kind to myself and writing and reading. That's all I got to do. I'm, I'm so thrilled for you. I can't wait to see everything that you do. And I'm just really glad it's very, it makes me happy when I talk to people who are actively involved in taking care of themselves because I think that not only does it inspire 
uh, me personally, it inspires other people. You never know who's listening to the show, who's been treating themselves like themselves like shit or telling themselves they're not worth it. And then who knows what they'll connect to in your story. And that'll remind them that it's that, that, they matter and that it's good to dance and it's good to go to therapy if you can. If by the way, if you're listening, I have friends who've had really good experiences with talk space and then there's something called better help. I, I can't like endorse them personally because I haven't used them, but they're lower cost. So if you don't have good insurance, like I do from my day job, Sam does from the DGA, God mm-hmm. bless. Thank you unions. Mm-hmm. But um, if you don't, you might want to look at those options. Cause I mean, people, who, if you've never done therapy, people who are doing therapy, we're all doing it online right now anyway, and it's still helping. Also, there's also a, um, I just want to quickly pull it up so that I can tell you about it. Um, that helps like black women get therapy and they, and they pay for it. So it is the, and I've donated to them. Loveland project, right? Rachel Cargill's project. Yes. Yes, The Loveland project. Yeah. Rachel Cargill's project. She's a public educator outside of the world of academia and Mm -hmm. that, and she always in explaining what she does, she'll talk about how she's outside of the world of academia and and teaching people about lots of things through, uh, you can look up the great unlearn and you can look at some other stuff Mm -hmm. she's done, but Loveland foundation is, and they've been expanding, which is cool. They've expanded their fundraising. They've expanded the amount of help that they can give to applicants as a result, which is really neat. Yeah. I really love it. And yeah, therapy, if you can get it, changed my life. And I just started it in November and I'm so happy. Oh my God. I'm so happy for you on this journey. It really is super helpful. Well, Sam Bailey, you fucking rule. Thank you so much. This was lovely. Thank you for being so generous with your time. No problem. Thank you for having me. This was great. It was a good way to start my day. Yay! Now we're going to go maybe metaphorically set sneakers on fire. Yes. (laughs) That's the work. And that was my interview with Sam Bailey. Get to know Sam's work. Check out Dear White People. And look for what Sam creates in future. I know I will be doing that. I'm very excited to see more of what she does. I hope you are doing okay. It's okay if you're not doing great. It's okay if you're not doing well. It's okay if you're just kind of doing okay. You know what? It's okay if you're doing shitty too. These are fucked up times, my friends. It remains a joy to get to bring these conversations to you. I hope that they offer you some comfort. If you would like to chat with me, I'm at Sarah J. Benincasa on Twitter and on Instagram. Also, of course, if you are a Patreon supporter, patreon.com slash Sarah Benincasa, you can use the message function there. And also, if you become a subscriber, you get a (laughs) semi-weekly newsletter from me. Sometimes now it's going to be videos. Sometimes it's something written. Um, Just about what's going on with some recommendations for things you might enjoy listening to, reading, eating, doing, etc. To keep yourself busy and entertained and hopefully a bit relaxed during this time. Thank you so much for being here. Take good care. I'll talk to you next time.